Hi, my name is Ken Jacobson. I want to welcome you to this episode of Top Docs, our conversation with Daniel Rame, director of Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen, which is about to have its world premiere at the Palm Springs International Film Festival. This conversation is another in our series of interviews with filmmakers whose documentaries will be screening in Palm Springs at the festival from January 6th to the 16th. We're very pleased to be partnering with the festival. Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen is a film about just that, the transition from Broadway musical to Hollywood smash success. Daniel Rame is a documentary filmmaker based in Los Angeles. Daniel's credits include Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story from 2015 about storyboard artist Harold Michelson and his wife, film researcher Lillian Michelson, who contributed in major ways to many, many great Hollywood films. The film screened at the Cannes Film Festival. He also directed Something's Gonna Live in 2009, which features conversations with six great Hollywood cinema artists. And in 2000, Daniel made The Man on Lincoln's Nose about famed production designer Robert Boyle. The film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject. Screenings of Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen will take place in person at the Palm Springs International Film Festival in beautiful Palm Springs, California. Screenings will take place Saturday, January 8th at the Annenberg Theater at 7 p.m. Sunday, January 9th at 9.45 a.m. at the Regal Cinemas and Sunday, January 16th at the Mary Pickford Theater at 9 a.m. Check out psfilmfest.org for more information and for the complete film lineup. We'll see you at the festival. And now our conversation with Daniel Rame, director of Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen. Daniel, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for having me. Hey, Daniel, great to have you here and congratulations on Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Daniel, why do you make documentary films? When I was in, in high school, I think I was all about 14 years old, I was already fascinated with the Impressionist painters. And my teacher in art school recommended a book by Emile Zola called L'Oeuvre, The Masterpiece, which is an exploration of Zola's friendship with Cézanne and Manet. I realized in reading that book that I'm deeply interested in the world and the power of the creative process and, and artists' minds. <laughs> and I think that really was the beginning of my own kind of curiosity in terms of telling stories about artists and movie makers, visual storytellers. I was really fortunate to have an amazing mentor and teacher at the American Film Institute, Robert Boyle, who was Alfred Hitchcock's longtime production designer. And he painted with Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera in the 1940s in Mexico. I mean, he was really someone who, beyond just his work in Hollywood, was really interesting to me. So he was the subject of my first documentary called The Man on Lincoln's Nose, which is the working title of North by Northwest. Robert Boyle was the production designer of several Hitchcock classics, including North by Northwest. And he was also the production designer of Fiddler on the Roof. So we come full circle. This is the 50th anniversary of Fiddler on the Roof. I can tell you Fiddler on the Roof was a pretty major thing in my childhood. I think my parents had three albums 
Man from La Mancha, Carousel, and Fiddler on the Roof. And it's something we, on the playground of my Catholic school, we would sing if I were a rich man and try to dance like we saw. It was a very big cultural experience. Do you remember what Fiddler on the Roof meant for you? I first saw it at the home of my grandparents. I actually still have today. It's like this double VHS cassette that was back then the best way to see Phil on the Roof. I don't even remember if it was cropped in the pan and scan of VHS era, but seeing it with them in their home and, and to the left of the TV was a portraits of my great grandparents, my grandfather's parents. I just learned recently, not only was he a rabbi, but he was also like a kosher butcher <laughs> and sadly perished in the Holocaust. So trying to identify like their roots and my own sort of origins and seeing almost like a documentary of what a shtetl looked like. That was my first experience. And because it's a musical it, and music penetrates you into the soul, right? It's working on so many levels. Fiddler on the Roof was pretty impactful for me. The director of Fiddler on the Roof, Norman Jewison, who was the son of a dry goods owner, only belatedly discovered that he himself was not Jewish, that he is, in fact, a Christian from the Toronto area in Canada. Jewison's own kind of assumption that he was Jewish, this kind of ill-fated trip to Hebrew lessons. Yeah, no, no question. As he says in the doc, the opening line of my autobiography is, from the time that I can remember, I've always wanted to be a Jew. And I think that assumption that because of his last name, he was Jewish and his best friend was Jewish and he was bullied in the schoolyard called Jew boy, Jewy. But I think beyond that, the anti-Semitism that he experienced at that time, I think just the general spirit and atmosphere of being in those Hebrew lessons and soaking that in at the age of six meant something for him. I think he found a a connection to the spirit of Judaism and was ever so disappointed when his parents uh, explained to him that, in fact, no, you're not Jewish. So it, it set up a very interesting question that he states in the film, where do I belong? I think that question is something that is so universal that we can all relate to. Then right before Fiddler on the Roof was offered to him, around the time Fiddler on the Roof was offered to him, he, he had experienced an internal crisis, both external and internal. Externally, America, was there was an upheaval. His very close friend, Bobby Kennedy, was just assassinated. And he kind of felt, what the hell? What's it all for? Like, why should I continue making movies? You know, it just felt totally dismal. And, and then he set out to start research on Fiddler. And I think that sort of brought him back to a sense of like, okay, this spiritual journey is something I really want to investigate. And I think that's what the movie is. The story in your film about how Arthur Krim, who is the head of United Artists Studio, offered him the job to produce and direct Fiddler. And that's where, you know, Jewison comes clean and says, I'm not Jewish. Yeah. And Krim says, what does that matter? We don't want a Second Avenue production. We want a film for everybody. Yeah, That's a very interesting response because right out of the gate, it, it says what the studio's expectations are for the film, right. that it's a film, quote, for everybody. And honestly, I think there's a bit of pressure there, which is we want a box office hit. I think there was some pressure too in that musicals weren't doing that great leading up to Fiddler on the Roof. There was the smash box office success of The Sound of Music. And then he had just done Gailey, which wasn't that successful. He knew that the pressure was on. Norman tells the story of being summoned by United Artists. And I think that certainly he, he had a vision 
And at that point, he had matured as a A-list Hollywood director to have been become established to the point where I think he trusted his own process and put together such a great team of collaborators, including John Williams and his longtime production designer, Robert Boyle, and cinematographer Oswald Morris. He was up for the challenge. Obviously, Fiddler on the Roof was first a huge smash success on Broadway directed and choreographed by the legendary Jerome Robbins, a.k.a. Jerome Rabinowitz, the son of working-class Russian-Jewish immigrants. How much did Robbins's background kind of lay the Jewish groundwork, as it were, for the film? My understanding is that he wasn't so connected to his Jewish background before Fiddler on the Roof. And it was in the process of making Fiddler that he, he was able to summon and and investigate his own background. I've been working on this doc since 2009 when I first interviewed Topol at his home in Tel Aviv. During the time I'm making, shooting all these interviews for Fiddler's Journey to the Big Screen, another documentary comes out called Miracle of Miracles. And that film is about Fiddler and all its incarnations, but really focuses on the Broadway production. And I was kind of relieved that they made that movie and told that story about Fiddler and all its incarnations. They spent about five minutes on the film. The interview with Norman Jewison was from the Blu-ray bonus material. They really didn't spend that much time focusing on Norman and his story, but they certainly investigated Jerome Robbins and his journey making Fiddler. So in a way, it was a relief for me to be able to really drill down and do an (laughs) x-ray of the making of the movie from the inside out and and explore Norman's creative process. The play was written by Joseph Stein based upon the stories of his daughters from Sholem Aleichem. And Sholem Aleichem was born Solomon Rabinowitz. Could you just say who he was? Shalom Aleichem was from the Ukraine. He was a a Russian Jewish writer who wrote in Yiddish. He met a real-life milkman named Tevya, who would come to bring him and his family milk and befriended this real-life milkman and wrote a series of stories over several years about this dairyman. And he eventually fled to Europe and then to New York City uh, later on, which is a pattern amongst many of the influences. Going back to the musical uh, on Broadway, you mentioned in the documentary that some thought it was going to be too Jewish to attract an audience. Others, once they saw it, thought it was too culturally sanitized, including the writer Philip Roth, for instance. But the general audience spoke the loudest. They made the musical a smash success. It clearly works for them. Why does the musical, and I would add the movie, which is also a smash success in 1971, Why does it work so well for a general audience? That's a great question. Why does it transcend the specificity of Jewish culture and reach the hearts and minds of people all around the globe? Famously, the Japanese loved Fiddler on the Roof, both the play and the movie. I think they related deeply to the tension between modernization and tradition. It's a story of a family and the disillusion of a family. And that's something we can all relate to. We're all Tevya. We're all the three marriageable daughters who want to find our own way in the world and come across the support or non-support of our parents. I think we can all relate to those tensions between mothers and daughters and fathers and daughters and their children. 
Not to mention the music is fabulous and, and transcends the lyrics by Sheldon Harnick and the music by Jerry Bach really bring to life themes. If I were a rich man, we all can share in, in Tevye's dream. And we can all share in Tevye the dairyman's wrestling with God and asking questions. I think Jerome Robbins, his genius, he was able to really tighten this material that was brought to him by lyricist Sheldon Harnick, composer Jerry Bach, and, and, and book writer Joe Stein. And he was able to sort of bring it down and distill it into one central theme of tradition and that tension. And also, I think that Jewison's film, placing that story and, and shooting it in Yugoslavia and Eastern Europe and really trying to kind of visualize, I think there's something about the visual language of Fiddler on the Roof that we can really connect with. I think another thing that really works for the film is seeing it theatrically on the big screen. I saw the movie when it came out in a theater that no longer exists in the San Francisco Bay Area. I saw it with my sister. It was a duplex, and we were given the choice of seeing this one movie in the main theater, Fiddler on the Roof, or another movie, which I have long since forgotten. And truth be told, I wanted to see the other film, but my sister won out. We were... Jewish, after all, nominally, but we were. And we did end up seeing the movie and just seeing it on the big screen as a boy. It's really an overwhelming experience, both the music, the setting, yeah. and even things like the dream sequence, which really was in some ways actually terrifying for me. How old were you at the time? So I would have been seven years old. Wow, that's awesome. My mother is, however, one of those Jews Again, she's nominally Jewish, was not a practicing Jew at all. She found the treatment of the shtetl and the pogrom a little, I would put her in the sanitized category. For her, it was just kind of light entertainment, obviously, in terms of Jewish history. Those are very dark events, and she was not as entranced as we were. As you were researching the film, did you discover other reactions by Jewish audiences when the film came out that were maybe a little more critical? Yeah, I mean, certainly the big review by Vincent Canby was aligned with some of the comments your mom made, I think. He took the task of the film. He thought it was sentimental and sentimentalized. And I think that generally speaking, a lot of audience members may have felt that what is the story of Israel and how does that connect to this film? The story of Jewish power. People wanted to perceive Tevya as a frail, funny, philosophical dairyman, but Jewess and casted this tough Israeli tzabar, right? So I think that there are a lot of mixed feelings about Fiddler when it first came out and till this day, for sure. You, you were speaking a little bit earlier about the influence on you of the visual arts. Many things I learned in this movie, one of which is the influence of Marc Chagall. Chagall was a Jewish, Russian, French, surrealistic, expressionist painter, born in the Russian Empire, makes his way to France, spends some time in New York during the Nazi occupation, and then returns to France. Can you tell us how he influenced everything from the title of the movie to the music to the art design? His influence was massive on this film. Yeah. Let's see. In the 1920s, he started to paint oil on canvas, a series of paintings, this surrealist depiction of a fiddler hovering above a roof, one foot on the ground, one foot above the roof. And it certainly inspired the production designer of Fiddler on the Roof, the Broadway production, Boris Aronson, in terms of how he created his sets. And if you look at his production art, you can really see the connections. Also, the Broadway 
working title, the play was called Tevya. And at some point, just before it opened, the, the producers got together and they thought, we need to find a title that really signals this is a show. I think they were inspired by the paintings. And Norman was also inspired by the painting, but he wanted to place his story, again, maybe because this is 1971 and the trend in Hollywood was now moving towards more of a kind of a realism, right, New Hollywood. And so he really wanted to set his story in the actual location where the story took place and recreate it, not in a surrealistic abstract sense. His intention was to have the opening titles, which is like a five to seven minute title sequence with an original cadenza by John Williams. The titles would appear against original work by Chagall. Mark Chagall was reluctant to contribute to the movie version of Figure on the Roof because he felt that Norman's vision was kind of going against what he felt was his vision in terms of setting it in the real world versus the abstract surrealist world of Chagall. So he declined to contribute. But I think that aspects of Chagall appear in the, Ken, you mentioned earlier, the, the, the nightmare scene and the set against the cemetery, the dream sequence. There are some surrealistic, but I think also there's the, the fiddler in his costume with the purple and the gold. I think that sort of is a homage to Chagall. But do I get this story right, Norman? Jewison purchased a Chagall and set it in front of Isaac Stern as he played the music. There's incredible virtuosic music that opens the uh, soundtrack. A hundred percent. Such a great story. He buys this lithograph in London in an auction and brings it to the recording studio. And just before uh, they started to record the cadenza where Isaac Stern, the great virtuoso violinist, he puts the lithograph up to the recording glass or the glass separating where the, they're going to record. And Isaac Stern says, we have the fiddler here. We have Chagall here. And I'm going to play, can play a quarter tone flat in honor of Chagall's uncle <laughs> who would climb up on the roof and play the fiddle, he would get drunk and play the fiddle. And that's part of Norman's, just across all of his films and filmmaking, as a great producer-director, could really bring together a, a group of collaborators like Isaac Stern. That's a director's vision right there, buying the, the, the painting and bringing it to the recording session. It's beautiful. Norman has such a great sense of humor. I pictured him in that moment saying, quarter tone flat, are you out of your mind? Truth be told, I asked John Williams during the interview. So did he play at a quarter tone flat? John laughed and said, it's a great joke. There you go. Speaking of John Williams, I thought his interviews were terrific. He's the musical director and conductor of Fiddler. He clearly has a lot of respect for Norman, for his musicality and his sense of rhythm. The revelation for me was just learning not only how important the relationship is between the musical director and the director of a musical, but that it actually changes how a movie is made. What did you learn from your interviews with John Williams? Maybe something that didn't make it into the final film. Didn't make it into the film, which I regret as I'm sharing this with you. And I will most likely put this in the Blu-ray extras because, you know, you just can't do everything. But... It was that journey, that research trip to Israel that Norman Jewison, Robert Boyle, and John Williams took. And John Williams pouring over archival recordings of Yiddish music and while in Israel studying 
the different styles of Jewish music. He goes into real detail on the different types of Jewish music. I regret not giving the film enough breathing room to go into that. But of course, one has to consider when editing the rhythm of a film and the, how the story unfolds. In my mind, there are two core creative decisions that Jewison makes. One is the decision, as you've indicated, to shoot on location, in addition to shooting in the studio, but to shoot much of it on location. The other, of course, is the casting of Topol in the lead role. Can you talk a bit more about that decision? For me, it really is the one thing where Jewison puts his stamp on the film and says, this is what's going to work for the film. Yeah, the musical Zero Mostel was hugely successful in that role, but I'm going to go with Topol. Again, his intention was to create a documentary in a way, experience of the shtetl. And he drew on photographs by the photographer Vishniak. Who, who took pictures of people in, in Eastern Europe in the 30s and 40s. And so he could draw on these pictures to bring the audience into that world of a Jewish milkman that they could believe. Vishniak, again, born in the Russian Empire, flees to Europe and then ends up in New York City. We'll link the show notes to some of his photographs. They're just amazing photographs of yeah. life in Russia at the time. Everyone was expecting, including Zero Mostel, that he would be the star of Fiddler on the Roof, the Hollywood movie. And Norman went to see Zero and saw the play. And I think he appreciated what Zero had to bring to the role, but was determined to cast someone who we could say, yeah, that's a Russian dairyman living in a shtetl, toiling the earth. Everything about his decision-making process was really around, I want this to be an authentic portrait. I think it was Sheldon Harnick who told him there's this guy in London, he's this Israeli named Chaim Topol playing Tevya. Norman flew out and saw him and I think was immediately drawn to Topol, whose parents come from Eastern Europe. And I think Topol was even drawing on his father's sort of background, living in a shtetl as well. When I made The Man on Lincoln's Nose and interviewed Robert Boyle and Norman Jewison about their epic location scout, six months, they went all across. They were in Russia and they realized, okay, that's just not going to happen. Then they went to Eastern Europe and, and found the perfect location. But the local authorities said, you, you can't shoot here. The Russians might come in and attack. And so the insurance company in London said, you can't shoot in this. So they had to keep looking. And Bob Boyle in The Man on Lincoln's Nose tells me that they took the music and played the tapes to see if how the location felt with the music. And Norman would drink vodka and just dance around the locations to see if it would fit. And finally, they found this town outside of Zagreb, Yugoslavia called Lekanek. And my understanding is a majority of Boyle's sets are still up and you can visit the shtetl of Anatevka <laughs> and that they're functional. And now Bob Boyle and the core unit, the core team of the making of the film, Fit on the Roof, were not Jewish people. That fascinated me. These artists who were sensitive to Jewish culture and loved Shalom Aleichem stories could bring this story to life. It's amazing the attention to detail as well in a story which you think you take from the book that was written about the movie, about the temple and just 
the drawings on the temple walls. There are paintings, panels on the sides of the synagogue that are very surprising to most people of both naturalistic and religious themes intermingled in a way that I don't think we think of as being on synagogue walls. No. Indeed, indeed. I would hope that's a structure that still stands. Sadly, that's the one structure that is no longer there. Jewison really wanted to donate it to Bar Ilan University in Israel. And there was funding put together to dismantle it and ship it to Israel. But at the last minute, it was decided that it's unnecessary to, to preserve that structure. And so it, it's lost forever. The, the film is obviously it's about Fiddler on the Roof, the making of the film, but it's also about Norman Jewison. Jewison was an extremely, he's still around, an extremely successful director, made many successful films, including Moonstruck, for example. But I don't know that he's really given his just due compared to a lot of the other directors who came of age at the same time. Why do you think that is? You know, I've been thinking about that. He worked in so many genres from romantic comedies like Moonstruck, musical Fiddle on the Roof, In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier as a Black detective in the South. He has a, a rich body of work, but there's no like common thread other than his sense of concern for the human condition, for underserved communities, and for in, in his way of looking at the world through humor. It was disappointing for me making this film to learn to what degree Norman is not a household name, so to speak. And because he was so close to my heart and the fact that I made a movie about his longtime friend and production designer, Robert Boyle, and got to know Norman. And any cast member who's worked with Norman talks about how he's this sort of amazing personality and ability to draw out deep complex performances from his characters and was a really great actor's director. But I think it's that there's no real unifying kind of aesthetic <laughs> in his storytelling. But I hope, you know, that this film is the beginning uh, of an appreciation for Norman. I think this is the first time that Norman is getting some recognition in terms of a feature length doc. And that was my intention to sort of explore that journey that he went on again from the age of six that we talked about earlier through really his late life. His directing styles, I think it's probably complicated. The actresses who played Three Sisters, the movies talk about him being gentle, supportive, even childlike. But in the behind the scenes footage, we get to see his real intensity. I mean, when he's yelling at Topo, what's your line? What's your line? What was his style? It seems like it's many things. It's many things. Absolutely. I mean, if you take any given scene and fit it on the roof, especially like the wedding scene, the choreography, I'm not talking about the dance. I'm talking about every background actor. I mean, you could almost isolate, move the focus on any camera, on any section. There's a story. And I think that just his command of visual language was really at that point by the time he made Fiddler on the Roof. Now he would tell me, I don't storyboard, but if you look that there are storyboards mostly drawn by the great storyboard artist, mentor Hubner of Fiddler on the Roof. But I think they had to, that was a policy within the studio too, to storyboard so that the executives and the money people could see the film beforehand. But Norman would say, I never storyboard. And he's among a very kind of minority of directors. David Cronenberg comes to mind that says, I don't want a storyboard. So I think he comes to the location and he builds the scene, the visual structure of the scene by working with the actors. 
and letting, you know, his cinematographer, in this case, Oswald Morris, frame the, the story. I think that his sense of musicality, there's a, a terrific interview on the Criterion disc of In the Heat of the Night. There's this shot by Haskell Wexler, and there's this incredible zoom onto a bridge where someone's running across the bridge. And in this interview, he says, I told Haskell, I want to do this. And like, these are the beats, like one, two. So he felt the movement of the zoom going into the bridge and he could kind of whisper into Haskell's ear as he's zooming into that bridge. And then he tells his composer, Quincy Jones, that, you know, the score needs to kind of capture that. So he sees it 360 degrees from the standpoint of the visual storytelling, the acting, the colors, the props, and the music. I think he really has a, an amazing command of visual storytelling. And this is my opinion, gets inside the humanity of the characters. I think that was really important for him. Who are these people? What are they about? How do they live? What do they feel? And I think that this film hopefully can depict an era of Hollywood filmmakers that were as concerned with the spectacle as much as they were about the, the humans, the, the, the humanity of the actors. So we are at the 50th anniversary of Fiddler on the Roof, the movie. How do you think it's held up? Do you think it still resonates with contemporary audiences? I can only speak for myself. I just watched it a few times in the process of making this film. I feel that it is a, a timeless masterpiece in the sense that it's, it boggles me. I'm not surprised, but MGM has now announced a remake. And what are they going to do? How much further can you take it? But to answer your question, in my opinion, I think it is a timeless masterpiece. I think it aged beautifully. The performances and the music and the cinematography and the editing, it, it all holds together. It's one of Norman's masterworks. Yeah, I'm a little scared of the remake just because we've just seen Spielberg's remake of West Side Story come out and people questioning, you know, why did we need to do that? I hope there's a lot of thought given to the why as well as the how for a remake. Maybe they can get Sasha Baron Cohen to play uh, Tevia the Dairyman and have a whole other take. I don't know. Now you're on to something. One, one of the scenes that I love in the movie you have a sequence in which you focus on Norman's social conscience and his standing behind his political beliefs. Norman tells the story of when he was at the end of his tour in the army at the end of World War II, and he gets a leave. He takes a bus down to New Orleans. They get to the South, and the bus driver says, basically, hey, what are you doing in the back of the bus? You need to sit up here. And Norman has to figure out what to do. He decides, I'll just get off the bus. I love that story because not only does it show him grappling with his political beliefs and coming to terms with the discrimination in this country that's so awful in the wake of the sacrifices made by African-Americans and others in World War II, but to me, it's the quintessential mindset of a director, mm -hmm. which is you're faced with a problem, a dilemma, and you have to come up with a solution. He just comes up with this solution that I wouldn't have even ever thought of, which is I'll just get off the bus. Indeed. That I think really is an origin story in terms of like also where we put it in the movie, just trying to peel the onion and find out who is Norman Jewison? 
and what are his life experiences that informed his very thoughtful and sensitive worldviews and caring. Nat Turner was a subject that he wanted to make a movie about. And I think that it just came down to the Black community wanting a Black director to tell that story. He went on to do Hurricane with Denzel Washington. Hurricane is Hurricane Carter, the falsely imprisoned boxer immortalized in the song of the same name by Bob Dylan. And he marched with Bobby Kennedy at, at Martin Luther King's funeral. So when it came to telling the story of Fiddler on the Roof, I think he really was compassionate and tried to understand. He interviewed survivors of pogroms. He went to a kibbutz in Israel and interviewed survivors of pogroms. He really wanted to authentically present something that they couldn't do in the Broadway play. And I think those were the things that were driving Norman in terms of his decisions and problem solving for, for the Fiddler on the Roof. But I think he genuinely wanted to show and dramatize the pogrom and the exodus. It's kind of heartbreaking, you know, when you see an entire village being emptied out because of a threat and learn about the diaspora a little bit through Norman's film. So the production designer, Robert Boyle, who you knew well, uh, lived to 101. Yeah. The lyricist Sheldon Harnick is still with us at 97 and seemingly could carry a tune until quite recently, quite well. And Norman Jewison is 95. Is there something about Fiddler that catalyzes longevity? Bob Boyle was teaching at the American Film Institute until the age of 100. I think that Norman certainly, health permitting, would still be making movies. I think these are artists that made a career out of making movies, but beyond that is a desire to communicate something. John Williams is still out there. He's 90 years old. He's still writing original music and performing concerts right now on tour. Right? And I think that there's just something inherently beautiful about the sense of this is not just a career. I, I have something I want to share with the world. Do you have anyone you'd like to thank specifically for the film? My core team is producer Sasha Berman and co-writer, co-producer, lead researcher Michael Sragow. I'd like to thank them. Do you have a next project that you want to talk about? December of 2023 marks the 120th anniversary of the great Japanese director Yasujiro Ozu's birthday. I'm planning a feature-length documentary exploring Ozu's life and work through his own words. Daniel, clearly you've made a movie about a director, Norman Jewison, who's in his element making Fiddler on the Roof. And I would say you're also in your element making films about great visual artists. So congratulations to you on the film. I'm sure audiences in Palm Springs will be thrilled to see it on the big screen there. Thank you so much for joining us on Top Docs and best of luck to you on the film. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate your inviting me to speak. Cheers. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you've seen in the past or even more recently, you don't think gets the attention that it should? A doc that I rarely see talked about that is an important work for me is uh, Abbas Karastami's uh, ABC Africa. It's always really interesting for me to see like a great master of film, of cinema that in his case, his work is a hybrid documentary, narrative, fiction, in that tension between those two spaces. But ABC Africa is like a straight on documentary. And it's just great to see the kind of formal and aesthetic approach that he brought to that film. 